Hi, this is Scott Wilkinson, host of Home Theater Geeks. In episode 64, I chat with Ron Williams, a veteran of the TV and film industries with nearly four decades of experience. So stay tuned. Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for home theater geeks is provided by Cashfly at C A C H E F L Y dot com. This is Home Theater Geeks with Scott Wilkinson, recorded May 2nd, 2011, episode 64 Veterans Day. This episode of Home Theater Geeks is brought to you by Netflix. Watch thousands of TV episodes and movies streamed to your PC, Mac, or TV instantly. Plus, get DVDs and Blu-rays by mail in about one business day. For your free 30-day trial, go to netflix.com slash twit. And by MailRoute, a secure hosted service that filters viruses and spam for companies of any size. Visit MailRoute.info and sign up with the email filtering service that Leo and Tom use. Hey there, Scott Wilkinson here with UltimateAVMag.com and HomeTheater.com. Today's guest geek is Ron Williams, a consultant in the broadcast and film industries with almost four decades of experience with a lot of stories to tell. Hey, Ron, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you, Scott. Uh, you and I have known each other a very long time. You actually worked on Home Theater Magazine for a while. And uh, so you've got some journalistic experience as well as plenty of technical experience in various aspects of, um, of the film and TV industry, which we will get to in just a moment. Before we do, though, I want to make sure that those who are tuned into the live video stream at live.twit.tv or tuned into the, uh, logged into the chat room at irc.twit.tv can post questions for Ron, and I'll pass on as many as I can. So, uh, so Ron, I'm, I've got that right, right? You're, you've, you've got like 37 years in the industry now? Yeah, I don't want to admit that, but yeah, it's, it's not what it is. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I don't want to admit my uh, 25 years anyway, but, uh, and before that, pro audio. Um, yeah, it, but, uh, it's kind of strange that I'm on this side of it because I'm always on your side. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, you've conducted plenty of interviews yourself, haven't you? Yes, many, many interviews, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, as I recall from your bio, um, one of your primary positions uh, was as an engineering and technical director for ABC in New York. Right, right. Um, and, and as such, you oversaw and witnessed many changes in the, the entire broadcast infrastructure. Why don't you uh, give us your impressions of, of what that was like, witnessing history, essentially? Well, yeah, it, it turns out that I, I started with ABC in Detroit uh, as a maintenance engineer and then transferred into New York. And I hit just at the time when uh, there was like total chaos in engineering because it was the changeover from film into hardcore television. And along with that came ENG. And moving um, ele electronic news gathering. Right. Uh, the 16 millimeter news film group uh, was being phased out in electronic news gathering and, and live microwave trucks were just starting. 
And it was a difficult time, but it's not unlike what we're going through right now with 35 millimeter film and uh, digital acquisition, like from the Arri cameras and the uh, Panasonic and et cetera. Mm -hmm. uh, and they finally figured out that it was easier to teach an engineer photography than it was to try to teach a photographer engineering. <laughs> but uh, therefore, about three years, it was chaos. It was really tough because, you know, you've got unions involved and company and negotiations and producers that are used to a certain thing. And, you know, it was tough. But we all knew that uh, electronic news gathering was going to take over just as we know that digital acquisition is going to take over the movie industry. Now, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that television, even television shows, for the most part, in most of their history, were captured on film originally. And that may be changing now. I, I heard recently that maybe over 50% of TV shows, current TV shows, are now being captured digitally. Have I got that right? Yes, yes that, is, that is correct. And actually, they do a very good job of actually <laughs> moving forward with technology and then... Uh, taking a step backwards, they do the digital acquisition in what we would call we would call video, but they do it in 24 frames with a film look, so that when they're finished, it looks like it was shot on film, but it's all digital. So, you know. Now, is uh, what's what are the differences between uh, the image the, that you get when capturing on film versus the image that you capture? digitally or is there any difference well the obvious difference is film is a, a photochemical process and it's has film grain film kernel in it it's a little softer uh and video is edgy as we know and crisp and clean and everyone in the video industry is striving for that clean crisp high def sharpness but you know Going to the creative side of it is there's always been the premise that when you're on film, it's kind of like a fantasy. You're telling a story. And hard video, live video, is reality. And we've gotten used to that with ENG, with live, you know, fires and all kinds of things going on, sporting events. People mm -hmm. relate that sharp, crisp image to video. And they relate the fantasy, the stories, the storytelling to film as they see in the theater and exhibition. But even the theaters now are, are um, transitioning over to digital cinema. Uh, and the source of that is often film, digitized through a, uh, through a special machine. Uh, but now more and more, I think people are starting to use digital cameras to tell these stories. So perhaps that association you're talking about may be, its days may be numbered. Right. Well, the benchmark for that, that move to um, theatrical video was a Blair, Blair Witch project. Mm. That was the one that broke, broke the barrier. Uh, not only broke the barrier that video is okay to go into a theater, but bad video is really good to go to <laughs> You know, I have to say, I didn't see that movie because I'm not really into horror movies or thrillers that like that. Um, plus the fact I heard that it, it was so handheld 
that it made people kind of nauseous to, to watch it. And uh, so that plus, I think Cloverfield was another example. Uh, yeah. So I didn't see it, but I heard it, it was pretty disconcerting. Yes, it, it was. But what it did is it, it set the, the benchmark for what would be acceptable because we had always had high standards. Uh, the Synthi standards committees and places like that, the EVU, are always striving, as we used to say, it was a race to the top. And now with video on cell phones and movies on cell phones, we call it a race to the bottom. Mm, mm. It's, it seems kind of odd that we have a race to the bottom with, with uh, handheld video and cell phones, as you say, and yet we're also trying to get better and better at delivering that content with Blu-ray and with uh, high-def broadcasts and so on. Uh, that seems to be to me to be kind of a, <laughs> a split personality, a dichotomy, an oxymoron, if you will. Yeah, well, no, I agree. It, it, it is. It's one of the situations that it's acceptability. It's, uh, we're going through that right now with 3D. And mm -hmm. there are a lot of groups that are saying, well, this type of 3D isn't as good and it's not full resolution, et cetera, et cetera. But with what it is now, it's acceptable. And the people who are paying money, buying the tickets, paying their fees for the cell phones, uh, uh, added data, if it's acceptable for them and they're paying for it and they're not complaining, that's where production's going to go. They're going to go where the money is. <laughs> mm. That's where yeah. the money is. That's what they're doing. Yeah. It's yeah. unfortunate, but that's what it is. Yeah. What do you think uh, of, uh, of 3D these days, speaking of 3D? Uh, have you been to many 3D movies? Do you have a 3D TV at home? Yes, yes, and yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Give us your, give us your uh, thumbnail uh, uh, impression of the current 3D landscape. Do you think it's here to stay this time? It's come and gone so many times. God, I, uh, Scott, if I could answer that one, I'd be worth a million dollars. <laughs> or more. Uh, the, the situation is, in the early days when we were writing uh, the references for the displays and going down that route, and the Pacific Rim companies, they, they had some choices, and I, I can't criticize their choices, what they had to make. They had they need to go into LCD, and those are three dirty letters as far as I'm concerned. I'll be very <laughs> Why is that? Yeah, there's everyone who knows me knows how I feel about LCD. Well, tell us, tell uh, us then, as a, as an aside and as a detour here, how do you feel about LCD? Well, LCD um, was a so-so technology to begin with. And as I say, they took LCD and it's a Band-Aid on a Band-Aid on a Band-Aid on a Band-Aid on a Band-Aid. <laughs> and they just keep putting Band-Aids on a bad technology. And it was, the, they're up against the law of physics with it physically. Because you've got, you know, little crystals in there that are twisting and reflecting light. And they only twist so far and they only push out so much light. And then they try to double the frame rate, then they triple the frame rate, and then they put uh, NDs in it to get it black, and then they change the black lights. And these, Scott, these are just all Band-Aids on a Band-Aid. 
there was a great technology, the SED technology that fell by the wayside because of legal hassles. Uh, you've got plasma, which, which works and is good. And we've got uh, OLED, which is fantastic. But with LCDs, just got so many, so many issues. But it's cheap to produce. And again, we go back to the consumer accepting it. You know, if you show them the difference between a plasma and an LCD with the black level and the gamma curves and things, uh, they go, oh, well, it's okay. It's $300 cheaper, so I'll, I'll live with it. Well, and, and one of the other things that I always say is that LCDs do put out more light, typically, generally speaking, than plasmas, and thus attract more attention on a showroom floor. Yeah, the moth to the flame. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I never, I never used that phrase before, but that's perfect. That's yeah, perfect. That's, the moth to yeah, the I've flame. Been, I've been using that for quite a while. It's oh, and that's man. exactly what it is. I mean, it, I've, I've worked with most of all of the the TV set manufacturers doing consulting for color imagery and things. And you ask them, why do you keep pushing it from, you know, 40 to 60 to 70 to 80 foot Lamberts when we create content at 35? And when you set up uh, the, the people who do calibration for home theaters and monitors, they bring it down and they, you know, do a really nice job of calibrating, you know, consumer sets. So when you ask them, the, the CE manufacturers, why, and it's because they get pushed by marketing. And you talk to marketing, and it goes back to the moth to the flame that sells sets. And then yeah. video all of uh, uh, Best Buy. Yeah, Simple I'm answer. afraid so. Yeah, I'm afraid so. Um, Let's see, we had a, comp oh, uh, oh it, it, some people in the chat room are talking about OLED, which, which you mentioned earlier. Do you think we'll ever get right. to a point when, uh, when we have large format OLED? Currently, we've got, uh, Sony has a 25-inch professional broadcast monitor, which uh, right. they've got one, one version at $26,000 and one at only $6,000, but it's 25 inches. Are we ever going to see a, a, a real consumer OLED, or is there some technological uh, barrier there? Well, um, let's see. Two years running, Samsung has shown a 32-inch AOLED, mm -hmm. and uh, it's very nice. It's it's everything everyone wants. But the problem is the yield is so small. Mm -hmm. We don't have a secondary market for the rejects. So they've kind of backed off on pushing it because, you know, usually in, in the, the steps of progression, they'll take the highest end, the lowest yield, and produce it, and then the subunits go into other markets. Well, as you pointed out, the BVM from Sony, the 25-inch broadcast monitor, at, you know, basically $1,000 an inch. Yeah. That's... PVM, the pro version, professional monitor, is at six because that display is taking the rejects from the BVM series. So they've right. got steps of progression for the leftovers. Um, <laughs> Samsung doesn't have that in the consumer world. Yeah. It is what it is. So, you know, 32 is about the biggest that I've, I've seen, you know, 
commercially available, but uh, it's going to be a while. I, it's an easy four to five years. Easy. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned also SED, which which I know um, disappeared because of legal battles and issues between the owners of various patents and intellectual property. Uh, but technically, do you think that that uh, is a viable, could be a viable uh, display technology for the consumer? Oh, in fact, it was. I mean, Toshiba built a warehouse. They had a warehouse of, of completed units. Oh, man. Legal thing to be, uh, in fact, because I had uh, consulted to them, I said, well, gee, guys, you can't sell them, but uh, how, how, what would it take for me to get a couple of them out of this warehouse? And they said, mm. yeah, legally, we can't, can't release any. But that was, a, that was the holy grail because it was a flat panel, solid-state technology that mimicked what a CRT does. And we said it was a, a flat panel CRT. It had these uh, tiny little electrodes that uh, were, you know, microns apart. And as they fired, it was a variable arc from off to full on. So they could track the grayscale with the voltage in this arc. And so it goes from shut off to full on as the so, video came in. Just like a CRT. Exactly. And it made, they, they really wouldn't, give us a contrast ratio, but they said it's better than 8 million to 1. Well, <laughs> I mean, certainly there's the issue of how uh, manufacturers measure contrast ratio, uh, which is analogous to how manufacturers measure power output on power amplifiers, perhaps. <laughs> but I will say that when I saw SED at CES and various trade shows, I mean, the blacks were black. And if you have true black, you essentially have an infinite contrast ratio. If your black level is zero, mm -hmm. then your contrast ratio is whatever your white level is divided by your black level. And if your black level is zero, your contrast ratio is infinite, uh, essentially meaningless. Yeah, exact, exactly. And, well, uh, to support that, you know, we had Pioneer with their what they call the deep well technology that also went to black. Uh, this, you're talking about the Kuroplasma? Yes. And they uh, were going well with that until uh, Panasonic bought their display division out. And I've asked Panasonic if they would come back with that because it was so good. And they said that uh, they, they had problems in doing that. But there was no other information that came from that. So, You know, I, I've, I've asked the same question of them many times, and I get... Not very satisfying answers. <laughs> right, right. It's, yeah. a, it's a good way to sidestep it. Yeah, it, yeah. Uh, listen, somebody in the chat room was asking about 4K, and I know you've got some stories to tell about 4K displays. Yeah, 4K. Um, that was one of those um, curses that we had in that we were way ahead of its time. Uh, Back in 96, there was a company, ID Tech, that developed a panel, 24-inch panel. It was 9.2 million pixels. 
and they had gone in league with uh, IBM for a scientific display. And then through time, it evolved into a really nice monitor, computer monitor, that took um, dual, dual DVI connectors. And it actually wasn't a true 4K of 4096. It was uh, 3840 by 2400, just short of that. Mm -hmm. But uh, IBM had used it in uh, medical and R&D purposes. Then ViewSonic threw in, and ViewSonic saw a market for it in uh, CAD. And then my company, the Landmark Group, we saw uh, purpose for it in film scanning because we were scanning film at that point at 4K and 8K and when they'd scan in 4K or 8K they had to work in a 2K proxy because uh, 2K was the highest resolution that we could see on a, a projector or a monitor at that time. And this, so was, to, this was the mid-90s? Well that's when ID Tech started and developed the monitor and it, we we didn't get our hands into it uh, and selling it commercially till about uh, 2001. Ah, okay. And but even back then, we were you were you're, you're saying that uh, films were being scanned at 4K and even 8K. Right. Yeah. The Imagica and the um, let's see um, the Kodak Cineon scanners were were up at that resolution at that time. Mm hmm. And scanning, obviously scanning 35 millimeter film into data to do visual effects and, and manipulation and whatever. Then it comes, comes out of that data into a laser scanner and they shoot it back out on the negative. So it went from film into data and back to film. And that was usually done in a 4K resolution. So this display they were able to actually see pix basically pixel for pixel of what they were doing with the film scanning and film recording. And that was a very, very, very small market. So then we found um, a unique application it was in Detroit uh, at the Dearborn Design Center for GM. And that was at the advent of when the AutoCAD designers, when they built and designed parts, that drawing and specification is what right to the mill to build that part. So they were dealing in tolerances of 0 0.002. Hmm. So in order to see exactly how these parts were going to fit, they needed an extremely high resolution display on the AutoCAD to see how these parts would fit. So consequently, they bought a slew I mean, hundreds of the 4K displays. And that was the prominent market for that display. You know, hmm. uh, like uh, computer-aided design and, and prototyping. Yes. Yeah. And, and that was one of the reasons that made this, this AutoCAD to mill system work quite well because the um, AutoCAD operators had the confidence to know because they could see that tight tolerance in how parts fit together, that it was going to be fine. Mm -hmm. They knew mathematically that it would work. There was no doubt about that. But they needed to see it visually. So that was one of the primary uses for it. And then it took some, what, five, seven years before uh, 
Thompson, Grass Valley came up with their Spirit, which was their 4K real-time scanner, because the scanners prior to that, it took uh, about two to three seconds of frame to scan <laughs> that resolution in. Wow, so, so that they, would take a long time to scan a movie. Oh, yeah. Took, well, days. Running 24 hours would probably take days. Yeah. So the, the Thompson Spirit was, uh, was real-time, so it would take the length of the movie to scan at 4K. That's pretty incredible, really. Well, yeah, well, it was longer than that because, see, they had to scan in all of the, the, uh, the editing clips. So it was a lot more than the length of the movie because uh, they would uh. scan, film in, and then do the manipulation and then go to editorial and then edit things up and then the finished product. And the finished okay. product got shot back out to negative. I see. Yeah. Or to a digital file in the case of, of digital projection. Yes, yes. Yeah. They, they Which, took those files. Uh, that's called the DCDM, uh, Digital Center Master data. And they could take that data and go anywhere. They could go to the theater. They could go to the film recorder, uh, down convert it, going into DVDs. They did a lot of things with the DCDM at that point. Right. Um, now, what about uh, 4K in the home? You, you, you talked about some of the professional applications, broadcast monitoring, um, not broadcast, but film monitoring, uh, prototyping, CAD work. Uh, do you expect to see 4K uh, in the home? Are we going to end up having to buy our movies all over again in 4K? <laughs> well, that's, that's an interesting... At it, it, the recent NAB, National Association of Broadcasters Convention, there were several, several manufacturers really touting 4K displays, uh, 4K cameras. In fact, uh, I think when I first bumped into you... Uh, at the show, you were doing an interview about the 4K camera, which is a at, little at JBC. Yep, with Leo on uh, on this very episode, this very show, Home Theater Geeks, uh, live from NAB. That's right. Yeah, it, it that one set a lot of people on its ear because oh my God, here is a true 4096 camera. It's a small palm, you know. What do you call it? Palm quarter or handheld? Uh, or whatever? I don't think it was quite a palm quarter, but it was. It's certainly in the realm of a of a camcorder, no question. Uh, that's true. 4K. Uh, Panasonic had that what 103 inch 4K display. Last yeah, they had, the, yep. Yep. So there's there's a lot of it 4K, and there's even been on several discussions of well, to go back to your first question. Uh, what was it, a month ago you asked me about 3D? Uh -huh. uh, seems to be a discussion whether people would rather see ultra-sharp, clean 4K pictures in the home as opposed to 3D. This is the big question. There's no, no yeah. doubt about it. it. It's an interesting question, and uh, I don't know if they've done any testing, consumer testing on that yet, but it would be interesting to find out whether someone would rather see 3D versus a really sharp, in-depth picture because I had heard comments on some of these 4K displays that, you know, it looks so real that it almost looks 3D. 
Well, this is certainly uh, Leo Laporte's point, and he and I talk about it on the radio show all the time, uh, which is that he'd certainly rather see 4K in the home because, as, as he says, as you said, uh, it almost looks 3D. I mean, the, the brain manufactures the 3D-ness of the image if it's that sharp and crisp. Uh, the problem I see with that, I, I have to agree, I can't disagree with that, but 3D is here now. It's available now. We have it in the home now. We have it in the theater now. 4K, we see a little bit in the theater. Uh, the Sony uh, projector is 4K, the digital cinema projector, uh, but it's being used more for 3D than for true 4K. Uh, and we certainly don't have any 4K content to deliver to the home or any 4K displays for people to buy and put in their homes. And I think that that's going to be some years off as well. So there's a bit of a chicken and egg thing happening here. What do you think? Well, yeah, well, you know, I get, I get philosophical on this point because we're, we're in a difficult economics situation. We mm. just got everyone into high def. Now we're talking 3D. Now we're talking 4K. <laughs> <laughs> You know, the consumer can only take so much, you know, and the early adopters are going to roll with whatever comes down the pike and that's fine. And, you know, God bless. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the, the vast majority of the population is not going to roll with all of these changes, you know, and somewhere along the line, these consumer manufacturers have to understand that when they're, and this is where the philosophical part comes in, when their market starts to taper down because of saturation, they need something new to bring their market back up. Mm -hmm. That's well and good for the manufacturers, but can the consumers of the world be rolling over after knowing that their NTSC or PAL sets sat there running just fine for 50 years, 55 years? Mm -hmm. And now we're going to ask them to roll over every five to seven years? That's, and even and good. even less time than that, uh, you know. I think the pace is continuing to accelerate. And then again, we have them watching video on cell phones. So you know, <laughs> <laughs> I've been having this discussion actually on my website, ultimateavmag.com, uh, when I did a story about uh, these new ultra-wide TVs that Vizio is going to come out with, uh, the twenty-one by nine aspect ratio. Right. And, uh, you know, people started going, what? I just got my HD TV and now I've got to buy a 21 by, you know, ultra wide uh, TV. My response is, well, no, you don't have to. <laughs> no, uh, no. And you know, enjoy the, one, enjoy the one you got. Yeah, it is, you know, it's, it's kind of like um, the situation that you get the question all the time, I get the question all the time, oh, you know, should I go out and buy a 3D TV and, or better one is which TV should I buy because I don't know anything and I go into any of the box stores and there's this big wall and I get so confused. So just tell me what to buy. And, mm -hmm. you know, that's, that puts us in a very precarious position because, you know, um, let me take a little license here. My example when someone asks me that question and I say, well, buying a TV has got like kind of like buying underwear. <laughs> you have to buy what you like, what fits you, and what you feel comfortable with. And nobody can tell you 
what to buy when it comes to underwear. So you have to kind of apply that the same for a television. You have to go look, you have to feel comfortable with your purchase, and you, you just have to feel good about it. Because, you know, you always have that 30-day return policy from anybody. So mm-hmm. just try it. You know, it's, it's a personal choice. It really is. Yep, yep. Well, I'd, I'd have to agree with that ultimately. Now, before we go on, I do want to take a moment to thank one of our sponsors for this show, uh, Netflix.com, which delivers movies directly to your home and saves you time, money, and a lot of hassle, I'll tell you that. You can instantly watch thousands of TV episodes and movies uh, stream directly to your PC or Mac uh, or your TV uh, or Blu-ray player, which most TVs and Blu-ray players uh, are capable of doing now. Uh, and even game consoles, Xbox 360, PS3, Nintendo Wii. Uh, you can also get DVDs and Blu-rays by mail in about one business day if, uh, if that's the way you uh, prefer to roll. And you can watch as many as you want anytime you want. There are never any late fees, no due dates. Uh, this is uh, a problem for the brick-and-mortar stores, but it's great for consumers. Um, one of our Netflix streaming picks of the week is uh, Serenity. And uh, this stars uh, Nathan Fillion, Gina Torres, Marina Baccarin, who is now uh, starring in the TV series V as the evil alien uh, leader. Uh, she has a somewhat different role in Serenity and the TV show from which it came, Firefly, one of my favorite TV shows of all time, uh, directed by Josh Whedon, uh, who gave us Buffy the Vampire Slayer, a surprisingly good movie in my opinion. Uh, anyway, Serenity takes a picks up where uh, the, the series left off. It was a, only a one-season series, which I'm very sorry to say. But they did make this movie, which was also very, very good. Although, if you're going to watch it, I recommend watching the series first because it really is a, a longer uh, story arc. Uh, but I do recommend it because it's, it's really very good. You can instantly watch this movie or choose from thousands of others uh, uh, or TV episodes when you register for a free trial membership by going to netflix.com slash twit. Be sure to sign up for that free trial at netflix.com slash twit. So, uh, Ron, I wanted to ask you before, while we have some time left, um, I know that you spent some time over in China at the Olympics, the Beijing Olympics. I believe that was 2008. Um, Give us some stories about that. That must have been fascinating. Well, I've, I've uh, with my time at ABC, if you recall, in the early years, ABC was the exclusive for summer and winter Olympics from 68 up to 80. And uh, I was fortunate enough to be on the, at first, just the operations crew and then got into the engineering management and then into the design groups. And once with that experience, the... Uh, International Olympic Committee, the IOC, once you get on their list, they kind of tether you. And although I didn't get involved with doing the actual Olympics that NBC was doing, uh, we did do the fiber optic interconnects and the microwave hops between Beijing, Hong Kong, and Shanghai. And that was a very unique experience because this, for the first time in all of the countries that I've been to doing you know, um, probably, what, uh, nine Olympic Games. 
was the first time we'd been in a country where they didn't speak English, understand English, or have any desire to learn English. Huh. And so we each had a interpreter slash guide. And I think the word guide was a cover-up for security. Because <laughs> there were places we could go and we couldn't go, and that interpreter, quote, guide, was the one that told us, no, you can't go there, and no, you can't not do that. And it's, well, this is what I need to do for my job. I have to get this fiber strung through here and over this building and into this rack, and it's like, well, no, you can't go in that room. So there wow. were all the hurdles in that respect, although they it did loosen up, and I must say, because we were there so far in advance doing the infrastructure, uh, we came in on the hardcore part of the government and the rules and the regulations. But by the time the Olympics got there, they had relaxed things immensely. Mm. And uh, we had to re-up our hard visas every 30 days. Every 30 and, days? Uh, yeah. And now you can get a, when you land, you go to immigration and you can get uh, a two-week visa just there landing and walking up to the counter. You know, and prior to that, I had to take my passport down to the Chinese consulate here in Los Angeles and give it to them. And four days later, they'd mail it back to me with a visa in it. Wow. So it, it through the time of doing all of the engineering work for the Olympics, uh, they had, the, the government had, had changed quite a bit and had understood what was going on and what they had to do. They had a, uh, the, the termination point in Beijing was a 41-story communication building, just a monolith. And when we came in, which was a year, about a year and four months before the games, the 41 floors that were total communication integration for the Olympics, they only had seven floors built out. The rest of the building was empty? Yeah, it was under construction. Internal wow. construction, not physical construction, but internal racks, wiring, etc. And we had strung all of this fiber up and just tied it off in a rack and said, well, you know, somebody will get to it at some point. <laughs> and we really couldn't wring out everything that we needed to do. But we put the infrastructure in and uh, enjoyed the time. It was, it was a great experience. How long before the Olympics were you actually there? A year and a half. A year and a half of preparation work. Right. Just, just for the, the communications infrastructure. Wow. Yeah, typically, uh, when I was with ABC, being in a four-year notch, you'd get finished uh, with one games. It'd take you three or four months to wind down out of it. And then you did nothing for eight, six, eight months on the next game before you started again. So that the, the broadcast groups like NBC, they're in there three years coming into next year into London. They've been all over that for almost two years. Wow. Have you uh, done anything with the London games or are you out of that no, now? No, I'm, I'm begged off because it's, 
it's getting a little more political than I care to be involved with, with the IOC and, and the broadcasters and the International Broadcaster Center group. Mm. But I've done it for quite a few years. It's time to let someone else have a good shot at it because it's a great experience. I mean, it's, it's, it's very rewarding, actually. Sure. Uh, did you come up against any particular technical hurdles? Uh, obviously, you came up with some political hurdles of people not, not wanting you to go here or there. Were there any technical hurdles, uh, technical resources that weren't available that should have been, or uh, anything along those lines? No, not really. I mean, the, the fiber communications uh, systems are pretty well set in place. The, the data rates and infrastructure for the hardware, the termination transmits, receives, uh, double hops, and things like that, that's pretty boilerplate and, and not very innovative at that point at all. Mm. Now, I just got finished doing uh, a conference, and uh, they were demonstrating the, they're pushing 100 gigs on uh, straight fiber now. Wow, what was the bandwidth you were getting in uh, Beijing? Uh, Beijing, we were running uh, about 20 gigs. Wow, so they've increased fivefold yeah. in only two, two, three years now. Yeah, that this uh, innovation of 100 gig was a, a big deal at the fiber conference that was here in Los Angeles. And uh, they were making a big deal out of it because there was some breakthrough in technology. And, God, everybody had it. You know, Hyundai, Juniper, Cisco, they all had it. And, uh, in fact, today on the press wire, I saw somebody is just announcing they just broke the 100 gigs with their particular products. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, 100 gigs is going to be around for a while. That's so, getting up there, yeah. What about Internet yeah. access? I would imagine that in China uh, they would restrict that in some way. Did that cause any problems for you? No, they, they were primarily on, on DSL. Um, the government monitors it quite a bit. Um, Nothing that affected us because, you know, you know, locks are for honest people, right? <laughs> <laughs> so it, it didn't really restrict us any. They, on the DSL lines, didn't like uh, us downloading movies and things like that because it hogged up the bandwidth. So after a certain period of time, they just shut you off. So they, they monitor the flow of the data. And if too much data is going there, they don't know what you're doing. They just shut you off. Hmm. But as hmm. far as technical, uh, no, no, no real problems with it at all. There, there's Did you see? Several... Sorry. Ahead. I was going to ask if you saw, we hear lots of stories about piracy in China and that you can buy uh, DVDs of, of current movies for a couple bucks on the street or whatever. Did you see any evidence of that? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's... And it was probably about 75 cents a dollar a copy for current DVDs. Wow. They're everywhere. They're everywhere. Hmm. And are they, uh, I've also heard that they're, that they're like shot with a video camera off of a commercial movie theater. Uh, so it must be pretty lousy quality. Well, that's the old way they were doing it. They, they used to do that, and you can certainly tell, and... 
in the Pacific Rim area, that's accepted, and there people just want to see the movie for the content of the movie and not worry about quality. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, there were evidence back then, and I know now that uh, they've got basically looks like data to data transfers for DVDs that you can buy on the street. I mean, the quality is incredible. Wow, and but still pirated. Oh yes. Yeah, yeah. That's Amazing. why the uh, the DCI, the Digital Cinema Initiative, the the group of seven major studios who kind of look out for each other and, and are moving this digital cinema process forward. Uh, they work with the MPAA, and there there's if you notice there's slowly movie comes out of distribution in two months and within three or four weeks it's in the consumer's hands for like you were pointing out the netflix and other places you can just get it right away mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so you're talking for eight weeks from when it hits in the theater you can probably watch it on netflix so true enough true enough isn't so much because we have these these avenues of communication where in this, a lot of places in the world, the DVD is still the only method to get a quick movie. Hmm. Well, I know that you also worked in uh, digital cinema quite a bit. And in our last few minutes, I want to ask you about that. But before I do, uh, I'd like to thank another sponsor for this episode, MailRoute.info. Uh, businesses of every size use MailRoute, which is uh, a email protection system. It protects you from spam, viruses. It simplifies your life, makes your email usable again. Typical mail route customers see 95% reduction in their inbound email volume, something I could sure use, with virtually no false positives. Leo Laporte loves mail route. He's been using it for six years. Tom Merritt, the host of uh, uh, Tech News Today, also uses mail route, and he can now use email domains he'd given up on as hopeless. There's no hardware or software to install. You just sign up with MailRoute and change the MX records of your domain to start your mail flowing through them. And then all you do, and they do all the work for you. Visit MailRoute.info to sign up. As a Twit listener, you'll receive a 10% discount for the life of your account. Small business accounts start at only $2 per user per month for 10 users. And because of demand from the Twit army, MailRoute has added a new service for individual users at less than $30 a year. Visit MailRoute.info and sign up for the email filtering system that Tom and Leo use. So, uh, as I said, um, Ron, we, you also have worked in the digital cinema industry. In particular, you were the uh, vice president of DoReMi, which supplies digital movie servers to commercial cinemas. And... Uh, and I guess that means you actually delivered the hard disks are delivered to the movie theater in order to play the movie. Is that right? Yes. The um, as you can imagine, going into data, the DCI's specifications for security is just beyond the DOD, so to speak. <laughs> uh, and yet, that doesn't is, prevent the Chinese from pirating. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you the the, the encryptions. And the way that the movies are distributed, I, I couldn't imagine how anybody could ever hack it. We always say if somebody can write a security, somebody's going to break it. That's always what I've said. 
Yeah, and uh, not this one. The a quick overview on how it works is the the data from the studio carries a key, uh, a KDM, and it's a release code, and it's on a thumb drive. So it's a, it's a hard fact, not anything that could be emailed or, or hacked that way. Mm -hmm. The data coming into the server is loaded in in random orders. And the key lets the server, what they call the media block, understand in what sequence and to unscramble what to make it play out. Now, the interesting thing is, is the media block is in the projector in the theater. It's built in the box. Mm -hmm. So it's tamper-proof. Uh, you can't tap into it. You can't pull the data out. There's nothing you can do uh, because it's an integral part of the, the path of the projector. So the data that's brought in on hard drives, it's usually brought in on one big drive now, and they put it in uh, housing, suck the data over onto the local storage, and then pull it out and push it on its way. It goes somewhere else. That data is sitting on the server, and when the key is authorized to play, it will play out. And it plays out from the hard drive through a... Um, uh, PCI Express cable into the projector. The projector then sees all the data, understands what the order is, does the decryption, and plays the movie out. And every time that happens, there's a backhaul to the distributor. Backhaul? Yeah, it's the, the line that talks back to the distributor. So every time that projector plays that data with that key, a data line is sent back to Paramount or Warner Brothers or Disney that says that in, uh, say, the Movico in Thousand Oaks Theater 4 is now playing Green Lantern, and it's played four times, and these are the times it's played. Hmm. And and it, causes that... a, it causes Sorry. some disconcerting because if something's not right and the maintenance guy has to go in there and wants to check the data, he can't. <laughs> without huh. playing the movie. And oh, when he man. does play the movie, he gets logged back, and now the distributor said, okay, how many people were there? How many tickets were sold? And this is how much you owe me. <laughs> <laughs> I had heard that uh, at some point, movies were going to get beamed by satellite into theaters, and there wasn't going to be any physical thing moved around. Is, has that happened yet? They tried that in the early days. We did testing... Um, with the SIMPTI DC-28, uh, the security committee, they went through several phasings of testing, and there just seemed to be, even though it's the same data that would be coming off that hard drive that they ship around, uh, the security risk they felt was too great. Mm. Early days, we tried it. We did it at the ETC in our testings. We had a system that, we were going to test the movie. We could call Warner Brothers and say, put it up on a bird. We'll suck it down over on Hollywood Boulevard and play it out, and it worked fine. So the system works quite well, but there was no confidence in the security for that. Mm. Goucham in the chat room asks, is there any fail-safe if the line back to the studio goes down? 
or is that on the internet and it's very unlikely to go down? Yes, the backhaul is on the internet, but it's also logged locally. So if there was something that didn't get to the distributor, they could always call the theater chain and say, well, we had a, a breakdown of the communications link. Please send us the, uh, the log for the theater for the last two days. And they just mm -hmm. take that file and email it over to them. Well, I have to say the last, the last movie I went to was uh, Rio in 3D. Uh, which was digitally um, pre presented, of course. And uh, Tom Norton and I went, and we were like two out of maybe four people in a relatively large theater. So the uh, the studios, when they got the report on that particular showing, must not have been very happy. I, I doubt it's going to be in that theater much longer. Well, you know, it, it, the, the, the exhibition industry is quite unique. They have... Uh, conference twice a year uh, it used to be here in Las Vegas it well still is but it's called show west but they changed it to CinemaCon, mm -hmm. and that's where all of the theater owners get together it's a huge convention and the studios preview the upcoming movies for the theater owners to choose which movies they want in their theaters and of course the theater chains are, are there as well but all the independent guys are there, and they sit and they look and say, well, okay, you know, if I'm in, you know, somewhere, Iowa, this is, our community likes this types of movies, so this is what we're going to put in here, versus Los Angeles that releases anything that dis the distributors put out is in a theater somewhere. Mm -hmm. So it's wide and varied. So, yeah, they, they keep close tabs on the demographics watching each movie and where it goes and how many people are in each seat. I must admit, we we came and saw that theater kind of at the end of its run, so I'm, I wasn't entirely surprised. Uh, but I know that uh, who, whoever was making money on that wasn't making much on that particular showing. Right. Well, you know, it it they have it all kind of calculated out before it starts, and they'll know within the first week or when they do the previews uh, how how it's going to go. So there's several theaters that were, I don't recall what title it was, but here in my local theater, it's a 14plex. They had seven theaters running the same film. Oh, man. So it's, you know, they have it all planned out. I mean, I'm sure they do. Yeah, I'm sure they do. Aphasia in Sweden asked a question of Ron. What was the most interesting moment of your entire career so far? <laughs> Tough to pick just one, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. Well, the, the the one that, because of recent times, two two things actually. Uh, I was at uh, Diana's wedding. You were at Diana, the wedding of Charles and Diana. Yeah, yeah. Oh we my God, I'm sorry we didn't cover that on the show. <laughs> and now uh, William and I wasn't there for that, but my colleagues in London. I have a, not this particular mug, but one's very similar to it uh, from Charles and Diana. And uh, Michael sent me one for William and Kate to go with uh, the Diana mug, which I thought was quite <laughs> nice of him. Wow, that's very cool. Well, listen, we've, we come, to the, we've come to the end of a great hour uh, with Ron Williams of Landmark Color. Thanks so much, Ron, for being on the show. Okay, thank you, Scott. It's good talking with you. Uh, you can uh, look up uh, Ron and read uh, about his company at LandmarkColor.com. 
Uh, my online homes are ultimateavmag.com and hometheater.com. You can email me at scott at twit.tv, which now goes to my new Gmail account. Um, <laughs> so you're more likely to get a response. You can also follow me on Twitter at htgeekscott. Next week, my guest geek is scheduled to be John Iverson, web monkey for my company and my immediate supervisor, to talk about physical media versus streaming. He's got some strong opinions about that, so I'm sure looking forward to talking with him, and I sure hope you will join us. Until then, geek out. <laughs>